John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 1411.HE1212. Certificate number 46102. The Washington Generals. listening to right there is Sweet Georgia Brown, jazz standard from the 1920s. It's often said to be named after a prostitute. <laughs> I don't find that hard to believe. Like most songs from the 1920s. Mm-hmm. You didn't know that? White yeah. Christmas was a prostitute. I thought White Christmas, Christmas? I, I thought White Christmas was about uh, white supremacy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is going to be a whole different show. You're dreaming about a white Christmas. It's also not from the 20s, so I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bing Crosby's plan to uh, create a white homeland in North Dakota. That was like his helter-skelter. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think the, there's a better attested story that Georgia Brown was the daughter of George Thaddeus Brown, a famed Georgia tuberculosis pioneer. You mean he was one of the first people to have tuberculosis? <laughs> I think of myself as a, I was kind of the pioneer of herpes in my high school. <laughs> no, he founded Sanatoria. Oh, I see. Back when, uh, you know, everybody had TV and that was like founding a startup back then. And his name was George, Sanatorium. His name was George Brown and he named his daughter Georgia Brown? No, he had uh, gender reassignment surgery. Oh, he did? No, he did not. Oh. Right. Was, <laughs> but, I li- <laughs> but I like how excited you were for a second. <laughs> you were very interested in that. No, he had a daughter named Georgia, and uh, because he was in the Georgia State Legislature at the time, he was able to get some kind of bogus ego bill proclaiming, in which the state of Georgia proclaimed that uh, his baby would be named after the state of Georgia. Huh. And that's why in the song, there's actually lyrics to the song, and they say Georgia named her, Georgia claimed her. It's a it appears to be a reference to, to Dr. Brown's daughter. Oh, well, I like that story. I mean, any situation where a politician can can burn public money. <laughs> <laughs> April 9th will hereafter be Fish Stick Day. Mrs. Paul's Fish Stick Day. Thank all 800 of you for coming to my Fish Stick Buffet. Uh, most people do not know the words to Sweet Georgia Brown, of course, because it's, not. it's best known in, a 19, I think, a 1940s version by a little-known 
musician named Brother Bones, mm -hmm. who was very good at whistling and played the bones. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at a picture now. I didn't know this, but it's actually, uh, it can be actual bones. You, you hold them between, it looks like between two of your fingers, and you kind of clack them together. Oh, like Spoon Man? Yeah, it's like Spoon Man. But what kind of bones? Chicken spoons. bones? I think originally they were uh, rib bones or Big leg bones. bones. Yeah, um, but probably not not human bones. This is, well, this is like, uh, you know, something you got from your butcher. So this is, and, and it makes a kind of lekkada decada decada clackety sound. Yeah. And which is, I guess, used in Celtic music, but also Zydeco and all over. Huh. And so brother bones was, I would have thought it was a, like a euphemism for the xylophone, but it's, but it's actual bones. Right. Because, well, because in the Flintstones, you do see them playing the bone, the xylobones. <laughs> is, is that what the Flintstones does? They just replace the word phone with, with it's, here's a Sousa bone. Uh-huh. Here's, here's a, a telebone. <laughs> Saxama bone. Uh, now it's often wooden sticks. But yeah, it's some guy clacking and whistling, which is, that's the weird tick, 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 tick you hear when right. you hear the theme song of the Harlem Globetrotters. Right. Well, now the version of this song that I uh, know is just whistled. Yeah. But, is that the 40s version? Yeah, that's, but there is, I think he is clacking away as well. I think, and there's, I think there's some kind of weird kind of early, it can't be the 40s because there's some early kind of synthesizer thing. That has always been a, uh, <clears throat> a tricky melody. I always feel flat. So there actually, it does have the Nova chord on it, which was the world's first commercial polyphonic synthesizer it, 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 it's just a it's just a kind of a, it was built by hammond and it looks like a hammond organ but it doesn't it's not supposed to sound like an organ and so the bass part of the version that we hear which is 1949 actually has a, has a, a proto synthesizer like an early it's like the first prog record actually wow. in Brown. <laughs> how funky i never would have known that this was such a pioneering track i mean it's Old and new, right? One guy's playing a bunch of rib bones. One, one guy's like literally playing Neolithic <laughs> instruments, and the other guy has a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> we know it as the theme music, the warm-up music for the Harlem Globetrotters, the legendary kind of novelty basketball comedy act of Wait our era. Wait a minute. You're, you're telling me that the Harlem Globetrotters aren't a legitimate basketball team? I guess we'll get into this. The funny thing is they were. At the time, the Harlem, the Harlem Globetrotters started out in 1926. They came from one of the, you know, great centers of African-American culture in, in its heyday in America, the neighborhood of John. I, there are so many things, uh, <laughs> so many things that, but, but what neighborhood would you say the Harlem Globetrotters were from Harlem? They are in fact, not from Harlem. Wait a minute. What? I set you up. They're actually from the South side of Chicago. Say what now? They were called the Savoy big five because okay. they played at the, the Savoy theater and they didn't actually play in Harlem until 1968. Calling them Harlem was a marketing move. You're kidding me. Because uh, Abe Saperstein, the, the Jewish entrepreneur who turned these guys into an act when he saw them play, thought, well, if I'm going to have, um, it, it was a kind of Orientalism, actually, except not for the Orient. For, right. Reverse. For the Eastern uh, uh. Seaboard. Like, if I'm going to have these black guys um, barnstorming around Iowa, I'm going to tell people they're from Harlem, you know? Yeah. Exotic Harlem on the, uh, you know, on the East River. Well, and during, I mean... You know, the Harlem Renaissance had a real reverberative effect across America. It really was the center of black culture in its day. So it would have been a, a synecdoche or a metonymy? I still don't know the difference. Well, we'll cover that on a future show. You should cross-reference this with your entry 
of synecdoche or metonymy. We don't know where it appears in the omnibus. Yeah, it could be a very uh, a show that follows right on the heels of this one. So Harlem did, yeah, it meant black culture to America. Yeah. And so, and that was kind of their novelty because they were not a novelty clown team. They were one of a bunch of very serious basketball barnstorming teams that came to town and would challenge your local collegiate team or whoever. And everybody would come down because there was no TV or radio. Was this a time when there would be uh, interracial basketball play, not on the same team, but would a black team play a white team? Right. So that was their novelty. They are not doing the crazy tricks, but you're coming down to see black people play basketball, uh-huh. if you can believe such a thing. Now, future links, we speak from a time in which this is not a novelty. The NBA has been integrated for almost 70 years in our day. But at the time, um, professional basketball well, first of all, it didn't even exist yet. Right. And by the time it did, it was very strictly integrated until the early 50s. My dad was an enthusiastic basketball player in high school, and he grew up in Seattle. And his basketball team was integrated, which meant that there were a lot of Japanese players. <laughs> there were no black players a secret weapon. allowed. But my dad said that Broadway High School was the best basketball team in Seattle, because they had all the Japanese players who were by far the best basketball players. Who I wonder who the Jackie Robinson of Japanese Seattle prep basketball is. I mean, well, I think they all came to my dad's funeral because well, I had a funeral for my dad and all of a sudden, like all these... Seven foot Japanese guys show up. No, they were all small, but like 89 year old Japanese guys all showed up at, at my dad's funeral at the Washington Athletic Club. And I was like, I've never met any of these guys. Who are these guys? And so I'm walking around talking to them, and they're like, oh, we used to play basketball with your dad. I was like, what kind? I always thought his stories were fake. <laughs> but no, when, when it was suggested that blacks be allowed to play on the same basketball team as white players, it was a, like a major sort of mind revolution, and it encountered tremendous resistance. Yeah, um, the first black players to play in the NBA, in fact, were all former Globetrotters. Wow. Because that's where all the African-American talent was in the 30s and 40s. And presumably, uh, like a white basketball audience was familiar with the Globetrotters and, and had seen them or it was like it smoothed the, the path. Yeah, it was certainly your it was your mark of uh, quality, you know, your seal of quality. Well, you know, well, this guy's this guy's black, but oh, he played for the the Harlem Globetrotters. Huh. Everybody knew that because they would enter real tournaments and they would win. It's funny to imagine, you know, future links. We speak to you from a time when sports is very much of our era, Mm -hmm. super concentrated in uh, cities. It's very urban. It's a super corporate power. It's a bajillion dollar industry. You know, famously, the NFL cannot be bullied because they're the only institution in America that owns a day of the week. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, very big on technology, you know, but, you watch a football game on Fox and they go to commercial break with like big computer generated robots pounding also, on like, each other. They really bully municipalities or, I mean, there's, there's yes. a tremendous professional sports have uh, one hand in the public kitty in the form of these public private partnerships where the city builds the arena and then the team uses yes. it and collects all the concessions. Even though they're literally playthings for some rich owner, yeah. they, they manage to extract hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks and municipal bonds. and On the promise that it's going to bring right. a bunch of people in to eat at our local Arby's. And what could be more 21st century than that? You know, <laughs> like a bunch of uh, super rich people, you know, raiding the corporate till for something that they could easily pay themselves. But in the, when the Globetrotters were starting out, that was not the model for sports. I mean, you had 
you had the Yankees, but you know, professional football was barely a thing. Professional basketball was not a thing. The, the model of sports was barnstorming teams that came through your town and you would have the novelty of watching, you know, some Jewish guys play baseball or right. a bunch of uh, African-American fellows play basketball. Did you know that my uncle was a football star at Yale? I did not know this. In the 40s. Uh, at the time, that was probably a very meaningful way to be a football star. It was the biggest you could be. I mean, he, he was a, the star receiver for Yale during the late 40s and was recruited by the Bears, the Chicago Bears. And he surveyed his prospects as a Chicago Bear. And what it meant at the time was you pile onto an old Greyhound bus <laughs> right. that had bears painted on the side and you thanklessly drive around America, you know, sleeping five to a room, uh, playing these sort of quote unquote professional football games. This is years before there was a Super Bowl. And he said he looked at that or, he, or his other option was go to Alaska and like dig holes in the ground and see if there's any if there are any uh, minerals you can sell at the bottom of the hole. And he was like, I'll go to Alaska. It seems like a better idea. Professional sports, worse than digging holes. <laughs> that was the official motto yeah, for so, decades. So yeah, firsthand experience, right? During this period, sports were more of a, I mean, it, college sports, I guess, were the biggest. That was bigger. Yeah. Because And it was a very much, a you know, America was a more rural place. Fewer people lived in cities. High school football, high yeah. school basketball. So it, it's kind of, yeah, you, you still see echoes of this today in you know, minor league baseball or hockey teams kind of driving around, getting little money and sleeping six to a house or, you know, some little town in Texas where everything revolves around the football, the high school football team or some town in Indiana where everything revolves around the high school basketball team. But for the most part, that side of American sports is kind of gone. Um, but back in the Globetrotters heyday, they were the best team. Did the barnstorming teams play one another or was their whole act that they would come to town and play your your regional team. The Globetrotters did not have a uh, a foil they would bring in until the 1950s. So it was both. They would come in and play your local college team, or there'd be somebody else on the circuit and they'd set up a little tournament. And they were better than any of them. It's, it's why they started clowning around because they could. You know, when you're up <laughs> when you're up 30 in the third quarter all the time, that's when you could start tickling the refs or trying weird half-court shots or... And and what accounts for how much better they were than everybody else? Uh, a lot of it was just, you know, the marketing of Abe Saperstein, their founder. He was the son of a tailor. He sewed their first uniforms himself. He was a, a marketing whiz. And, uh, you know, he attracted the top talent. And once there was a name, once there was the Harlem Globetrotters and then a bunch of less well-branded teams you didn't know, it was very easy for them to attract all the top black talent. Mm -hmm. and uh, Particularly in a time when if you were black, you couldn't play in the NBA. Right. And they're playing a bunch of five foot nine white guys with receding hairlines and really good set shots. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and they would start to play. And even when the NBA, you know, when the Basketball Association of America and the NBL, the National Basketball League, merged in the 40s to form the NBA, the Globetrotters would even, would sometimes play against NBA teams. And school them. In 1948, they played the Minneapolis Lakers, uh, you know, back when the Lakers still played in a city where their name made sense. Right. L.A. is not really a, a city of a thousand lakes. No, it's a city of what? Two lakes? Silver Lake and... Uh, uh, Echo, Echo <laughs> Park Reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there are a couple of lakes in L.A. The dried, Toluca Lake. The dried river bed from Greece. <laughs> yeah, Toluca Lake. Yeah. yeah, the Lakers are named for Toluca Lake, I think. <laughs> and the Clippers are named for Clippy, the, uh, the Microsoft mascot. <laughs> so they would play... Uh, they played the Minneapolis Lakers and schooled them twice in a row. Hmm. They beat the defending world champs. Mm, humiliating. And they were a big, they were more popular 
as well. Like uh, the NBA started to schedule a Globetrotters exhibition game before the Knicks would play the, the Sixers or whatever, because that's the only thing that would bring in a crowd. Nobody cared about the Celtics. So the NBA was trying to uh, trying to get in on the Harlem Globetrotters action without actually without integrating. actually hiring any black people. I right? see. I see. Um, and it was still a big deal. Like uh, as late as uh, when Wilt Chamberlain was graduating from college, he, instead of taking an NBA contract, he went to the Globetrotters because that was more prestigious. Wilt the Stilt was a Globetrotter for a year before he took a pro deal. No kidding. And uh, you know, of course, they became a, a novelty team. You know. In our childhoods, they were um, an entertainment franchise. You'd see the Globetrotters playing against robots on Gilligan's Island or uh, solving mysteries with the Scooby-Doo gang. Like sure. that, that was my first exposure to the Globetrotters. Sure, that's, that's in the Jump the Shark era, right? Where, <laughs> where all of a sudden everybody is, uh, everybody's showing up animated on Scooby-Doo. But it's also the peak of their influence. I mean, that's when they have Curly Neal, Meadowlark right. Lemon. That's kind of the iconic... Globetrotters team, that's probably the height of their cultural cachet. And oh, you know, for sure. It just they, happens to be measured in Saturday morning cartoons. Sure. It was, uh, they were as big as Evil Knievel. They're as big as the Ice Capades, John. Hard to, hard to believe now. So, so you're saying that the Globetrotters were the original pipeline into the NBA for African Americans? Yes. Uh, the first three Amer uh, black players in the 50s were all former Globetrotters because they had the best talent. And, you know, when they became more of a, uh, a gimmick team, that's when they did the things we remember. You know, to this day, they still do a draft every year where they will try to draft, you know, Usain Bolt or or, uh -huh. or Mariano Rivera onto the Globetrotters. They signed a woman in 1985. They signed one of the top NCAA women's players. And to this day, today there's three Globetrotter squads, but there's usually a woman on the court. Uh, in the 50s, they had, they hired a one-armed guy who had lost his, <laughs> lost his arm in some kind of terrible Arkansas car accident. But could still play basketball. But had taught himself to be a college star, I guess, uh, you know, just one-handed shooting and uh, couldn't do a crossover. Right. And they would make honorary Globetrotters as well. You know, they they declare that Whoopi Goldberg or, or Nelson Mandela was a Globetrotter. I remember as a kid in St. Peter's Square, the Globetrotters making um, Pope John Paul II an honorary Globetrotter, even though he, you know, right. didn't have a lot I've of never moves. never seen a basketball. Didn't have a lot of moves <laughs> in the pose. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So did you ever see the Harlem Globetrotters during this period? I, I, to this day, I have not seen the Globetrotters, and I feel like it's a part of Americana I have missed. Have, are you, uh, have you seen the Globetrotters in person? I have seen the Globetrotters multiple times. Uh, the first time when I was a kid in the 70s, I saw them in their, in their heyday, Curly Neal and Meadowlark Lemon, in their, just when they were tearing up the court. And as a kid, I was 
bowled away, just flabbergasted by their, the tricks and the technique and the fun. They were just like irrepressible and had a whole stadium of people just kind of like hanging on their every move. Yeah, super good at working the crowd. Just worked you know, the they room. Would, they, yeah, they would sit on people's laps in the front row yeah. and they would go up and they would, you know, they would get into a little, it was almost like pro wrestling. They would get into little scraps with each other or their opponent and toss water on their heads and then they'd run into the crowd and you'd think they were going to throw water, but they'd throw confetti. Yep, yep. They would, t- they would tease and kind of torture the refs. Right. But it all was good natured. It never felt cruel. And then I saw them again as a, a little bit older in Alaska because they toured everywhere and they came to Alaska. And it was a big event when the Globetrotters were there. It felt like, you know, it felt like Led Zeppelin had come. Partly that's because it's Alaska, right? Yeah. At the time uh, when national acts came, it was always a surprise. I, I was I was in Maui a couple of years ago when the reconstituted journey with the sounded like Filipino guy were going to be there. And it was just blanket. They're going to be in Maui and it was just blanketing the airways 24 seven. People could not believe their good fortune. Yeah. That fake journey would be there. And I, there I assume was, that's what that's what childhood in Alaska was like when somebody came through. It really was. You know, we had a minor league baseball team and we had, uh, you know, the, the college hockey team was a big deal. Mm. But the Globetrotters, I mean, everybody was there. And they've, got, it was, they've got Globe in the name. They're a world-class champion. And then later, I think I ironically went to see them in the 1990s when they <laughs> came through town. I like how we can trace your personality as well. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, when the main players were all kind of getting up in years, it was still, you know, my irony just ran right out of the end of my toes because it was so fun and such a, a great display of athleticism and, and humor that uh, you couldn't be cynical about. I hope they still exist in the future and you can go see the thunderous dunks and the half-court shots and all the craziness of the Globetrotters. They're, they're phenomenal basketball players to this day. As, as late as 2003, which is not our distant past, but yours, they were playing NCAA teams and almost always winning. In 2003, they went 7-1 and one against Division I schools, even though their, you know, their star is... Cedric Sabala, some guy that washed out of the NBA and is <laughs> taking a break between the Israeli league stopping and the Russian league, the Lithuanian league starting, you know? Well, um, the, the trick shots, if you imagine that the entire thing is staged, let's say the, the whole game is scripted and there's not a moment of spontaneity in it, which I don't think is true. But even if that were true, the trick shots are just they stand alone. You're as, still seeing some dunk you've never seen in the NBA. Yeah. You're, you're still seeing some half court shot you would never see. How do they pull it off? Right. I mean, the, the athleticism is, it's a different kind. It's like showy, but it's, it's phenomenal. But they traditionally have, they typically play against a team of straight men. Well, yeah. Let's get to how it works because this is not an entry about the Harlem Globetrotters. You're here to, to learn about an infinitely more exciting topic, the Washington <laughs> Generals. Works. No, the Washington Generals. Yeah. That's, that's what we said at the top of the show, right? Oh, but first I do want to say that they do not play NCAA teams anymore by official decree of the NCAA. Because it was embarrassing? I think they don't like the idea of, you know, defending champion Syracuse, you know, got beaten by 30 points in, wow. in 2003. I mean, they didn't have Carmelo Anthony, but... But was Syracuse playing for their lives? I mean, were they really... I think they were playing to win. And wow. the NCAA said, we do not want to see this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, this episode is about the Washington Generals. The Harlem Globetrotters had to play someone. And in 1952, they decided that what if, instead of drumming up local talent 
or figuring out who can get to uh, Cedar Rapids on that night, we should have some team of foils that follows us around in the bus and we play them every night. And so they had a guy named Red Klotz, a basketball player from Philadelphia. Good old Red Klotz. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, I know. Listen, if you I have Red my... Klotz in your <laughs> tissue at night, make sure you call a doctor. <laughs> I got, I've got my monthly visit from, from, from basketball coach Red Klotz, honey. <laughs> I didn't even think about that because I've, I've been seeing it written out and I did not realize I was going to have to say it out loud yeah. about a hundred times. Yeah, Red Klotz. Sorry. Dur- dur- so there it is. During the next... 20 minutes, I'm going to be saying red clots so many times. Uh, he was an NBA, so he had, you know, in Philadelphia, he was beloved for um, being a high school star. And then I think he was, a, he played at Villanova or something. And he played in the NBA. To this day, he is the, sh- he played in the Baltimore Bullets. To this day, he is the shortest player ever to win an NBA championship ring. How tall is he? He's, uh, I don't know. How he's tall five, is he? He's only like 5'7 or something. Right. You know, there are shorter players, but nobody ever uh, won a ring. And, the, and so was, did, uh, Abe Saperstein like call up red clots or did red clots come to Abe with this plot or how did this all go down? The red clots plots, the red clots plots. It is not a red clots plots. It's a Abe Saperstein thing. You'll plots. I am already plotsing. He, yeah, he, he calls him up and says, Hey, uh, would you like to manage and coach and probably play for, cause clots is still in his thirties at this point. Um, a team that plays the Globetrotters every night. It's a good deal. We'll give you so much of the gate. You know, it's it's kind of like an opening act, except if the opener just got humiliated the whole show. Now, were the Globetrotters and the Washington Generals reverse integrated? Were there white players on these teams? Uh, the Globetrotters did not have, they had some white players early, but their their brand very quickly became, Harlem. we're the guys from Harlem. Right. So it would kind of mess things up. Like I think uh, when they drafted their first Hispanic or signed their first Hispanic player in the mid eighties, I think that was kind of their color barrier. And so to this day, a white player would be a novelty on the Globetrotters, if indeed the current lineups have any at all. Um, but what about the generals? The Washington generals were mostly middle-aged white guys <laughs> with soft bodies and receding hairlines. They were, they were Red Klotz's buddies. Hey, uh, I resemble that remark. I resemble it very, very closely. Um, it's kind of funny that they were named the generals. You mm-hmm. know, lots of sports teams named for, for hardened warriors, you know, the, the Spartans and the... Right. The, the, the Columbus Blue Jackets, that's a military history thing. The boots on the ground types. Right, but few for the brass. Because <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to think, yeah, the generals, they'll, yeah. they'll, get you, they'll whip you into shape. Uh, the Washington State Department functionaries. <laughs> but it was 1952, and the team was named in honor of General oh, Eisenhower. Right, of course. Who is, uh, had, you know, just, I think, was running for president, was, you know, the most famous man in America. 52, there were still a lot of war-fighting generals milling around. Sure, and... Um, you know, I think it must have been a thing. All these guys from in, getting back to White Christmas in the movie White Christmas was a plot device about what to do with a World War II general when he's home and he's running a B&B and he's not happy. Like this was something in the culture, I guess. Like, what do we do with all these sure. former heroes and leaders of men who now have no men to lead? Yeah, the, the generals were thick on the ground at that point. So many generals. <laughs> He could field the basketball team. <laughs> yeah, there were 12 generals. It was like Omar Bradley in the post. And uh, no, these were these guys were named the generals. Um, and they would play, by 52, the Globetrotters were, were, uh, were the clown princes of basketball. They were doing all their hijinks. But what would, the kind of the unwritten rule that Saperstein and Klotz worked out is that <laughs> the generals would essentially not play D. Saperstein and Klotz. That's my, my favorite Michael Chabon novel. <laughs> 
We are represented in your time as well by the law firm of Saperstein and Klotz. Please do not pirate this recording. Uh, their great, 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 great grandchildren and or robot functionaries will track you down. So yeah, the, the generals could not play defense, basically. The whistling would play and the Globetrotters could do all their crazy behind the back passes and set up these nutty four-man alley-oop patterns. Right. And the generals, the generals just had are to, just having some... Like, you know, zone defense. Yeah. You, right now I'm shifting my, my arms are out, my palms extended, and I'm going to the left, then to the right, then to the left. Like jazz hands. Like the kind of fake defense that the generals would play. Um, but on offense, they would actually play. You know, they would try to, to score every time down while the Globetrotters fooled around. And then on the other half of the court, they would just do nothing. And Red Klotz thought this was... The, you know, he felt they were underappreciated. He mm -hmm. thought this was harder than it looked. He compared them to Ginger Rogers, basically. Right. You have to do everything that Fred Astaire does, but backwards. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not true here. The, none of the generals could do the, the crazy <laughs> car wheels and, uh, and windmill dunks that the Globetrotters started doing. But they did have to be a Globetrotter type. They had to play in a Globetrotter type game, but always on their heels. Right. And they basically. couldn't just, they couldn't like miss every shot. They had to put up a score. No, they were playing to win and they were good players. I mean, then is now, if you look at the roster of the Washington generals, they were guys from D one programs for the most part, you know, maybe, maybe not all D one starters and maybe some strong players from smaller schools. I like hearing you with all this sports talk, Ken, it's like you, uh, you've got some sports radio, like lingo that oh, you're throwing in here. Yeah. The future doesn't know that I can ball. Oh yeah. No. Right. No, I, I'm just a, yeah, I'm you just got the courtside tickets. I'm a sports radio caller every day. I spend, I spend, uh, at least 90 minutes every day yelling at, um, middle-aged white men about some kind of trade mistake. When, when Ken says D1 future links, he's not talking about a Terminator model. He's yeah, he, talking about division one basketball. I hope that's not the name of the <laughs> missile that destroys civilization. <laughs> and I'm just bringing back terrible memories. It would be like if the top level NCAA play was nine 11, was called nine 11 or right. something. <laughs> A funny thing about the generals is, uh, you know, later in their career in the fifties and sixties, first of all, they would essentially lose every night. You know, they, they would lose hundreds of times a year. God, it sounds like so familiar to me. <laughs> it's really to lose every night and keep coming back. So taking you back to your, <laughs> taking you back to your yeah. club days. Yeah, I mean, No, it's a description of my romantic life. The, uh, they, uh, in order to shake it up, they would often just change the name of the team. The Globetrotters would announce that they would not be playing the generals in your city. They would be playing the, uh, New York nationals. And the next night they'll be in Spokane against the New Jersey Reds. Right. Then it'll that, be in Butte against, against the Boston Shamrocks or the Baltimore Rockets or the Atlantic city seagulls. These, the however, these, however, were all the Washington generals in a series of different uniforms. Oh, they carried around trunks with different, <laughs> right. uh, different cosplay. <laughs> right. So they'd be in yellow and green as the, as the generals, but then, you know, they'd be, uh, you know, they'd have blue uniforms and be the Atlantic city seagulls or whatever, you know, t the illusion that the, the Globetrotters could defeat all comers. Right. Basically. Uh, and in the last, you know, they, they are now in the 60 odd year of their career and they have lost 17,000 times to the have, Globetrotters. And did they ever win a game against the Globetrotters? In fact, they did. Uh, in the early days when the kind of the, the kayfabe, do you know the word kayfabe? Mm -mm. Let's introduce to the future the word kayfabe. This is the pro wrestling term for things that are only real within the staged reality of the squared circle of the, of the pro wrestling ring. What's the derivation of kayfabe? I believe it's a carny term. There's actually a whole bunch of folk etymologies. Nobody really knows. Um, no, but kayfabe is a thing 
yeah, within it, the uh, within the carny scene. It might, you know, theater it, people. Some say it's a legend. Named it for a legendary, you know, a wrestler named K. Fabian. Some say it's Pig Latin. Uh, it's like Pig Latin for be fake, hmm. which is not true. That would be eBay no. ache fay or right. Uh, K. Fabe, or, or maybe that it's from a kind of a Jewish criminal slang uh, to keep KV, which which is from a, the Latin caveo, meaning to to keep a lookout. What like, do, like, keep an eye open, keep KV. What does, um, how is it spelled? K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. And, it, and it, it was only really useful in pro wrestling when you would have to distinguish between staged events and real, like, these guys hate each other. Oh, oh really? In kayfabe? No, no, they really hate each other. Right. Or you'd be like, or you'd say, yeah, these two wrestlers are, are kayfabe married. Like, it's just, it's their in character, basically. Got it. And in our era, when kayfabe is kind of, in, you know, when that kind of, Kabuki has increasingly taken over all our institutions. <laughs> now it's often used in other, you know, it's often used in re in other senses. You well, know, when like, you think about the kayfabe of, of, uh, podcasting, I mean, <laughs> you know, people legitimately think I'm friends with all my co-hosts. People, uh, might think that we're not in a, a, a bunker. People might think our underground vault is kayfabe. Yeah. People and, might think that I'm fully clothed right now instead of in a bathrobe. <laughs> uh, the bathrobe is a nice touch. I appreciate that you started wearing something downstairs. Why was I talking about pro wrestling? Oh, you were talking about the kayfabe oh, right. of the of the Washington Generals. So before the whole before the kayfabe ritual of how they would uh, try to win every night, but inevitably fall short. Before that became a thing, they did win a couple games. I think in the early fifties, mm -hmm. the only win that is actually recognized by the Harlem Globetrotters organization, I assume at this point for publicity purposes, <laughs> happened on January fifth, nineteen seventy one, in Martin, Tennessee. Oh wow! So so in that, the heyday, that legendary night. They dragged old Dixie down. Uh, yeah, the uh, the generals had lost 2,495 games in a row. And they so had enough. It's got to be wearing on them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think they decided before the game, this is it, guys. We're going to go 1 and 2,495. It was just sort of a series of things. Curly Neal was out with an injury. Okay, that's a good one. So he was kind of their ringleader. So Curly is, and from when I saw them, was definitely like a very recognizable player. He was bald, shiny bald pink. Curly is a joke. And uh, and he was like the ringleader. He was the centerpiece of the, he was the, he was the boss right. of the court. And kind of at the center of the shenanigans. Yeah. And so without him there, it was much more of a straight basketball game. Mm -hmm. And... Through whatever quirk of history, the Globetrotters were having an off night and the generals were playing the basketball of their lives. <laughs> um, and suddenly, in early in the fourth quarter, the Globetrotters look at the scoreboard and find out they're down 12. Uh, and what's the score at this point? It's in the 70s or something. It's, you know, they're, they're down 12. I mean, it seems like most, for all of the scoring that happens, it seems like the score of these games is typically kind of low. Do they play full-length basketball games? They do, but I think just think of how much of the clock ticking goes to uh, Goofing. their ninety, their hilarious 90-second bit they always do with this referee or when they run up in the clock. I think they do a lot of this stuff on the clock. Yeah. So the Globetrotters make a charge. They've, you know, they've got to erase a 12-point deficit in the fourth quarter, and they actually go up 99 to 98 with a few seconds left. The generals have less than a minute to score. The ball goes to who other but their point guard, Red Klotz, who is... Red is still on the team in 71? Yeah, Red is in his 50s <laughs> and still playing point guard for the Washington Generals, which I'm sure will tell you a lot about their the seriousness of their play. <laughs> uh -huh. 
And he takes it down and kind of puts up his kind of patented two-handed set shot. And he never said whether he was trying to make it or trying to miss. But the ball goes in and the generals are up. And the Globetrotters see the writing on the wall and hurry down court. And uh, Meadowlark Lemon takes a hook shot and misses. The, the timekeeper keeps uh, giving them, keeps fudging and giving them a little more time. It's like the 72 Olympics with the <laughs> Russians, except with even more on the line. And Lemon keeps missing hook shot after hook shot. And finally, they whistle it dead. And the generals have won 100 to 99. Wow. Well, I mean, that's a huge... For 1971, that's a big basketball score, 100 points. That's an NBA score. Uh, they were playing straight basketball, and they were playing well. Wow. Martin, Tennessee was a dry town, so nobody had nobody could get drunk. The generals, for whatever reason, had not brought along crates of champagne. They had not anticipated. The cel celebratory right. popping of champagne bottles? So they poured orange soda on each other. The crowd was pissed. Oh, the, of course. The Globetrotters were pissed. You don't show up to see the Globetrotters lose. Red Klotz often said that the crowd reacted as if he had killed Santa Claus. <laughs> but it was a dry town, so they didn't burn the stadium down. They didn't <laughs> riot in the streets. Yeah, the, I, I, I was just thinking that that's why they had to pour orange soda onto it. But yeah, maybe that also explains why the city of Martin, Tennessee is still standing. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start the generals uh so even after their historic win they went that was uh that was pretty much it that was the high watermark for their franchise in 1971 if you uh use winning as a metric I'm a regular American guy. I was raised with the American ideals. That, that winning is the way you measure success. That winning is the way you measure. And, and but, but you could measure success in terms of these guys have had a steady job this whole time. It's got to be a great gig. Red Klotz played into his 60s. The, so I, most, I almost certainly saw Red Klotz when I saw the generals play the, the Globetrotters in the, in the 70s. Did you not remember seeing the, old, the very old man from the end of 2001 struggling down the, the court? I, I mean, there were so many little old men in the 1970s. It was like one of the things that characterized the era. There were still guys in, uh, in cardigan sweaters and fedoras, like shuffling around, taking up seats at the five and dime soda fountain. This is where we should cross-reference with the hat etiquette entry and the uh, entry where we talked about the automat. Right. Uh, because... Yeah, yeah. Uh, at Woolworths, at the the counter at Woolworths, where you could get a chili dog and a milkshake. When you saw them, were the Washington Generals all wearing fedoras? No, no, that was the the Washington kibbutzers. <laughs> Obviously, not an option for the the Globetrotters. They all had the stylish afros of their time. But, right. Uh, the Generals' uh, brand was retired in 1995. Hmm. They, I guess it had been sullied by their 
17,000 losses. Uh, they, well, and also generals didn't have the cultural cachet that they once did. I think that's probably part of the problem. Also, Washington. Washington has a real branding problem in our era. Right, right. Those clowns in Washington. Um, so from 1995 to 2007, the Globetrotters played the New York Nationals, a kind of like mm-hmm. generic sounding basket sports team from a, from a movie, right. like from an episode of heart to heart where there's a basketball player involved or something. Yeah. Just like all the gangs on 21 jump street. <laughs> right. I think we have talked about fictional street drugs of television. Yeah. Maybe that should be its own entry too. And, and finally in 2000, I think in uh, the late two thousands, uh, you know, around 2007, they were rebranded as the generals hoping to recover, you know, the Globetrotters had kind of become a nostalgia act. Mm-hmm. People did not want to see the New York Nationals. They wanted to see the Washington Generals. Uh, and finally, in 2014, the brand was retired. I guess the Globetrotters were tired of splitting the take with a team that uh, couldn't polish their Jordans. So it was it finally retired, 2014. We'll never see the Generals play again? Well, that is, that turned out to not be the last step in their history. Uh, I see. But before we, before we leave the Generals where they are now, in the year of our Lord 2018, um, you know, I wanted to talk about why the Washington Generals are interesting. Why not do an episode on the Harlem Globetrotters? The Washington Generals never got stranded on Gilligan's Island. Right. They never were. Uh, I guess that's a point in their favor. They were never on Scooby-Doo. They never got to go in the mystery machine. And part of it, I think, is the, you know, the racial politics we touched on earlier. The Globetrotters were a icon of of not just black America, but of American culture right. for have been for 70, 80 years as the American view on race has changed substantially. Right. Right. They were initially uh, a force of, of integration. And then they were a force of, well, first they were kind of an exotic thing, you know, almost like, you know, some guy at the, at the carnival who has to dress up as King, whatever of, of darkest Africa, right, you know, right. like come see these Harlem athletes, you know? Uh, and then they were, yeah. Then they were a force for immigration. I- integration. Integration. What did I say? Immigration. They were, they were not really a force for immigration. They did draft that Latino guy in 1985. They were briefly a force for immigration. But was he an, Amer- <laughs> was he an American? <laughs> I don't actually know. You're right. But along the end, uh, and then, uh, in the, 60s and 70s, you know, all these uh, guys with big afros dunking over little white guys. Right. You know, it's that's a pretty potent symbol of of black power, right? It was, yeah, and it and and it felt like a cartoon version of it, so that it was palatable you could to still a take white your, audience. You could still take your dad. Yeah, you could watch. You could watch little white guys get dunked on, but it felt like ah, it's okay because it's that, fun. That sure was the heyday of. Uh, racist white guys with pot bellies saying terrible things about minorities, but just loving the hell out of Willie Mays or, or whoever it was, you know, like the classic uh, caricature of the Southern sheriff who's yeah, a racist, but you know, he likes, he likes the good ones. Right. Yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. or whatever. (laughs) And that was kind of a problem for the Globetrotters that they had become the good ones Uh, that it was okay to like. Because they were accused of minstrelsy. Sure, of course. They're they were out, Uncle Tom. Right. They were toming for Abe. That's what some, you know, civil rights uh, leaders and black activists would have said. Oh, of course, because then there's also the the uh, the combination of Jewish entrepreneur with black uh, Jewish, celebrities. Jewish money plus black celebrities. Right. So this is a common uh, U.S. entertainment archetype. Uh, the, the, the archetype of rock and roll. And it's, yeah, it's uh, part of, I mean, Louis Farrakhan, or Louis, rather, <laughs> 
about to say Louis Farrakhan. I didn't know like you guys did. were still hanging out after some of those incendiary things he said, John. <laughs> I, he's a trumpet player. I appreciate your loyalty. Louis Farrakhan used to make this criticism all the time as part of his critique of, of this type of show business. Sure. And there was that kind of shading of anti-Semitism that like was not super subtle in a lot of uh, wings of, of black militancy right. in that time. So you're saying that the Harlem Globetrotters fell out of favor with uh, like progressive black America because they were seen as, I mean, was this, they did this really happen? Y yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the NBA is integrated. The best black players are now winning titles. Why do we have to watch these guys kind of shuck and jive, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And the response would always be, uh, no, they win. You know, the, the generals are kind of what made that dynamic possible. Right. The general's logo, if the internet is to believe, is still a, a you know, a globetrotter, a, a huge African-American man dunking over a hapless white guy <laughs> like who's just staring at the rim like he can't believe what he's seeing. Like he's never seen it before. <laughs> But I mean, I, I read that Wilt Chamberlain and Michael Jordan both said that they're that they think the the best basketball player who ever lived was Meadowlark Lemon. Yeah, and I think that was true of a lot of a lot of black kids coming up for generations. You know, even when they could see heroes in the NBA, you know, there was still the Harlem Globetrotters, like kind of the icon of you know the the accident of putting Harlem in the name kind of made them an icon of. African-Americans everywhere. Yeah, they were America's basketball team. And Jesse Jackson, you know, they wore red, white, and blue. Like those those uniforms that Abe stitched had red and white striped trousers while the generals are kind of wearing yellow and green, which yeah. is, you know, the off-brand colors you never see on political campaign signs. No, the, those, are, those are the colors that you get when you eviscerate someone. <laughs> The color of bile. I don't know if they. I don't know if they wore bodily fluid colors. <laughs> like I don't know if red clots literally had clots yeah. on, on his uniform. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and and they were defended. Like Jesse Jackson, I think would point out that uh, you know they were a symbol of of black pride and power when you would see them. You know, up forty over the generals. You know, like that. That was the dynamic they created. I really want to know Chuck D's take on this. It's true. I feel like I shouldn't even have an opinion until I know what Chuck D thinks of the Globetrotters. If we search through the lyrics of Public Enemy, I bet you there's a reference in there somewhere. Like, what if there sense. is some missing verse of Fight the Power where he's like, oh, suckers were racist, you know? Like, <laughs> like, he's, like he's just goes to town on Curly Neal and we're like, whoa, Chuck. I don't think it's possible. Chuck, you know, Chuck is a little bit older than me. I'm sure he grew up loving the Harlem Globetrotters. America did. Um, and But the thing I love about the generals is there's something else America loves, which is an underdog. In 2017, the generals... I should have said Mr. Chuck. I'm sorry. I, 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 need, to, I need to get that in there. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't have the right to call him Chuck. Mr. Chuck. M Mr. D? What do people call no, him? No, he says, uh, you can call me Mr. Chuck. Oh, I didn't, you... I didn't know we were supposed to say Mr. Chuck. Well, that's, you learn something on this program every day. How is it you know how to address Chuck D but not Louis Farrakhan? I know how to address Louis Farrakhan. I just, I, I, I was in the, the Harlem Renaissance for a second there and, uh, and. Louis. Uh, hey, Louis. Louis Sachmo Farrakhan. <laughs> um, in 2017, the generals came back last year in our timeline. Oh. The Washington generals came back under new management. Um, Red Clots had since uh, kicked the bucket. Red past. Clots died surprisingly recently. Like I think around 2011, maybe 2014. Oh. Um, the GM of the Washington Generals now is Kenny Smith, the former NBA, another former NBA point guard, although this one you'd probably better known as a TNT basketball personality. 
uh, and their branding is now, this is not your father's Washington Generals. We're playing to win. Oh, really? Yeah. And I wonder what this says about our time, you know, that, you know, cause we do kind of also live in the, the day, you know, this is kind of a rise of the underdog, you know, we're, we're still in the, uh, the aftershocks of the Occupy Wall Street movement. You know, your average American is very aware of issues like income inequality and concentration, you know, power and money being increasingly concentrated on the 1%. We're kind of in the age of the underdog. Yes, but also I think at the time, you know, during the heyday of this um, rivalry and this competition, it was presumed that everything else you saw in the culture was real. Right. Um, even the ones that weren't, I assume. Even the ones like, that weren't. Like quiz shows and... Uh, yeah, it was, you know, there was, a, there was a tremendous trust in what the media was presenting to you that it was an accurate uh, take. And so it, this, the comedy of the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals, I mean, as a kid watching the game, I was... I hope they win. Yeah, I didn't think that it was a an, uh, some kind of clown act. I thought that this was a real basketball game. You didn't know about kayfabe. And now that nothing is real, right? Now that every single our presumption when we're presented with something on in the media is like, where? What's the trick? Who benefits for with the, from this really? Uh, the idea that the generals would come out and say like, no, this is real now. It kind of just, I guess it. It fits. We were joking about how, uh, you know, the generals were not appreciated in America, which is a country, a nation of winners. You know, we see ourselves as a land of people who got ahead on our own merits. Right. Um, and I, I was reading an interview with one of the Washington generals about his experiences touring the world, you know, because the Globetrotters have played in 122 countries and territories. They yeah. go everywhere. Again, America's team. They went to Moscow in the 60s and played for Khrushchev. It was, it was part of uh, thawing East-West relations. Um, I mean, they didn't play for Khrushchev. Khrushchev was not GMing a, a Russian team, <laughs> but they played in front of Khrushchev at some Russian stadium, the arena that badly needed the, the income. Did he sit in Jack Nicholson's seats? And... <laughs> hey, ref, you're missing a good game. Um, and in this interview with this guy, he was talking about playing in Latin America particularly. And he said in Latin America, they are just, they're beloved. Like in Latin America, he said, in South America, he said, they love us as much as the Globetrotters. Huh. And I was thinking about how that's true of, uh, you know, America doesn't really like, we don't really like lovable losers. Like when a city has a history of sports incompetence, like Cleveland or our own hometown of Seattle hmm. um, for most of our lives, it's it's a punchline, you know? Right. We There's a little bit of lovable loser around the Chicago Cubs, right? I mean, the Boston... Red Sox, the like hundred years of losing. I was thinking about that. And I guess my take would be that lovable loser quality is limited to those cities. Like oh. in Chicago, they love the Cubs. In Boston, they love the Red Sox. But, but I feel we don't like love them. America in general hates them almost as much as the Yankees, you know? <laughs> like, like we're out of Cubs, they're sore losers. They blame Steve Bartman, you know? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, you're like, right. Like we find that whole culture of a losing sports team kind of distasteful and kind of back away a little bit. But elsewhere in the world, it's different. Yeah, like South American soccer teams often will legitimately be beloved for losing. Like, oh, I love that... Uh, you know, that Bolivia national team, it's funny. They never win, you know, and the fans will straight up, uh, will, will just, that'll be the culture of the franchise. There's a, a famous Colombian soccer coach who's, uh, I think Maturana, he's a legendary Colombian soccer coach, not my field, but his most famous aphorism is, perder es ganar un poco. Hmm. To lose is to win a little bit. Yeah. 
you know, losing is just winning, but less so, essentially. You know, it's it's kind of a Zen way to see sports incompetence. You know, I really feel like I should have that emblazoned on the top of my college transcript. <laughs> and that concludes The Washington Generals, entry 1411.HE1212, certificate number 46102 in the omnibus. Futurelings, I know that some of you have taken to fast-forwarding through this portion because you feel like it is boilerplate, but you are fools to do so. Your time is not limited. Ours is. That's right. By the coming collapse, you have infinite time to enjoy the fruits of our labors. We don't uh, list all these social media handles because we think that it's just like some dying art where we're like fumbling through some obligation we have to our corporate masters. From my point of view, I want them to know how dedicated we were to this as an academic project, that we would even maintain all these social media presences, even with the near certainty that they would not exist in our audience's timelines. At dinner last night, my family asked me what I did yesterday, and I was proud to say I answered 40 emails that were sent to Omnibus Project at HowStuffWorks.com. You love the fans. That's what, I, that's I, love what I always say about you. People are like, what's John Roderick like? And I say, he loves his fans. And those 40 emails were, were so smart and so nice and so like just generally like made me feel like the listeners of this show, who obviously are typing with their crab claws. Uh, On some kind of time traveling <laughs> yeah, in a, email network somehow. In an anomalous wormhole in the future. All of those uh, sentient beings were able to communicate their stuff to us in the English language through a babblefish. Maybe our, maybe futurelings are just babblefish. They translate for who? For no one? Babblefishes. <laughs> they translate for no one. <laughs> That's the challenge of being a babblefish. Come up with something and then the other fish translates It's it. like you're the Washington Generals, you know? If there's nobody, <laughs> to, if there's nobody to lose to, like, why do you exist? Anyway, so do not tune out this portion of the show. And also, Ken has started making gags in this area. It sounds like you are promising that you're going to reply, send warm personal replies to everyone who, who uh, contacts us in this way. Listen, if you contact us just to say, good job, we're going to reply and say, thanks. THX. Yeah, if you, uh, if you contact us to give us some sort of pedantry about some entry we did, we will re reply with, pedantry and kind. If you're wrong, we'll roast you for sure. We will flame you. Oh, I swore. Dang. They will, uh, they'll bleep that out in case that's not a swear in the future. You just can't say those future swears like, um, what's the Battlestar Galactica swear? <laughs> a fnord? Flarking or something? <laughs> we'll do that with our episode on fake street drugs of the future, fake swear words of the future. Uh, if you write with something mean, um, we're gonna post your, your email handle to social media and let our real fans tear you apart. We're going to read it on the show. Yeah. And we're, well, first we're going to feel sad for at least a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're sensitive people. We don't want any mean emails. But then we're going to read it on the show. Uh, but if you are on Twitter and send us mean tweets to at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick, that is perfectly within the vernacular of Twitter. Almost everything said there is mean, poorly thought out or mean. Uh, but if you want to write a mean tweet, send it to Ken. What about at Omnibus Project? Couldn't, oh. couldn't they send it to the official institutional? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's handle? right. If you've got a problem 
If you're mad today, if your mom didn't love you. If things are going wrong in your life and you blame two nice guys <laughs> from the distant past. Uh, then uh, tweet to at Omnibus Project. Uh, if you really want to feel good and have a nice, fun life and a fun social, like enveloping social experience, go to our Facebook group, Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. Uh, listeners, we don't know how long we're going to survive. And we probably shouldn't be wasting our few remaining days making this outro longer and longer. <laughs> every, every single entry. <laughs> because we don't know how long this civilization will survive. We hope and pray that the cata cataclysm will never arrive. I just said catacataclysm. Catacataclysm. The catechism. The calacalism. We hope this catechism will never arrive. <laughs> but if the worst comes soon and a nun wraps our knuckles, this recording, like any recording in the series, may be our final word to you. But we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Thank you.